Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. This is the Slow Poisoner. I come to you from the future with these words of warning. It's a hot horror planet. It's a hot horror planet. It's a Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 79. This episode is sponsored by the fine folks at Lee's Comics. Attention comic book fans, Lee's Comics of Mountain View, California has closed. But here's the good news. Lee's Comics eBay store is still going strong with over 10,000 vintage comics, the majority of which are now on sale for half off. Choose from Lee's huge stock of golden, silver, bronze, and modern age comics, and specializing in Silver Age Marvel titles. You can count on friendly service, accurate grading, and quick, secure shipping backed by a money-back guarantee. To check out Lee's eBay store, go to eBay. Click Advanced Search to the left of the search bar, scroll down to Sellers, and enter Lee's Comics Inc., period. That's L-E-E-S-C-O-M-I-C-S-E. I-N-C, period. Don't forget the period. Lee's Comics is shipping daily with no delays. New items daily. Mention the Fun Ideas podcast and get a free bonus gift. Long title, Looking for the Good Times, Examining the Monkey Song One by One by Michael Aventrella and Mark Arnold. A book that examines each song, gives lots of details about each song and our own personal opinions. You can find this book on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, and anywhere where good books are being sold. Our webpage is wordpress.monkeys.com, where you can see many of the songs and give your own opinions of them. And we will be discussing this more on Zilch. Hooray! I'm back in business. My old computer took a dump, and after I purchased a new computer, I was initially unable to upload the next episode for the podcast. Well, I've got everything working again, and now have one of two more new episodes before I take a summer break. Our guest today is an artist most famous for his work for The Village Voice and National Lampoon. I know him from The Electric Company magazine and TV show, and his children's books. Here he is, Stan Mack. Okay, on the phone today we have Stan Mack. How are you today? Hi, Mark. I'm doing fine. I'm doing well, too. And uh, just wanted to talk to you a little bit today about your career and some various things you've done. So uh-huh. I guess first tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in cartooning. Well, I guess you could say I stumbled into it. Unlike a lot of uh, people who grew up with comics and wanted to do comics, while I went to art school, it wasn't about the comics especially, except that as a kid, of course, I absorbed comics and cartoons in every possible form, comic books, daily comics, animation, I guess, the usual run, but it um, it was not a career path that I uh, <laughs> thought to follow, it just was sort of in the blood at that point. 
And uh, so when you, you were taking art class, where did you go to school? I know I read it on your website, but you might as well say where you went to art uh, school. Yeah, the Rhode Island School of Design. I was a townie. I came from Providence. Okay. And uh, do, what type of classes did you take? Was it? Well, I, I didn't pay a lot of attention to much. I was uh, very good in life drawing. Mm-hmm. And um, I majored in illustration because in those days, we're talking about back quite a number of years where illustration was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Illustration had been a big deal forever, going back to the early 1900s. But, uh, uh, and it was going through a, a big transition in the 60s and 70s when I came in. I had this kind of odd, quirky, penline drawing style that uh, <laughs> certainly we never would have played you know, in the so-called golden age of illustration. It was, but it was a time of uh, alternative art, underground comics, mm-hmm. stuff like that. And um, when I was going around my portfolio to be an illustrator, mm-hmm. uh, it got some attention because as one art director said to me, I'm looking at the sketches, oh, you must be from Europe. Okay. Meaning, I don't know what you're doing here, but it's interesting. So <laughs> that's how I got going in illustration at a time when you could do that sort of thing and actually get work. So I really had a lot of work as an illustrator long before I turned to comic strips. Hmm. And um, what was your kind of first breakthrough? Was it just magazine illustration or did you ever break through in the children's books or what was the first thing? Uh, Well, there were different categories and kind of happened separately. As far as the kids book goes, I I remember I had an agent. In those days you had an agent Mm -hmm. and they actually walked around with a uh, portfolio that wasn't online then. Anyway, she walked into a publisher's uh, book publisher's office and showed my work, this scratchy penline style. It's sort of like Edward Gorey, but without the character, <laughs> you might say. And, uh, and the guy said, you know, I have a book project that's underway, and the illustrator cannot do anthropomorphic characters. Can your illustrator do that? We need, it's, the book was called Potato Talk, and he said, yep. we need to animate a potato. <laughs> and she said, of course... It wouldn't have mattered what he said. She would have said, of course he can do it. Uh, anyway, <laughs> drawing faces on potatoes and every other kind of inanimate object uh, was something I did without hesitation. And so I got that job. So that was my first okay. real book assignment. Okay. So I stumbled into it that way. As far as the cartooning, and then the illustration goes, it was just, I followed along behind a lot of hot illustrators of the 60s, kind of the Milton Glaser. Mm-hmm. School of Illustration, and I just picked up along with them. I was in the right category. I could do and was willing to do anything. You know, there was an old TV show called Have Gun, Will Travel. I said, I have a pen. We'll draw. <laughs> just put the paper down. I'll do it. <laughs> and that's how, uh, and there was work. So okay. uh, advertise, a lot of advertising that paid pretty well. It's not like today where young cartoonists really struggle as far as I can tell yeah. to do it that was work in those days and the same thing for magazines there were also more magazines right so but I wasn't a New Yorker style cartoonist I, I didn't even think of myself as a cartoonist I was a uh, an illustrator and I also looked into a very important job as an art director at the New York Herald Tribune which was uh, a competitor to the New York Times the Trib was at the end of its uh run, mm-hmm. but they had put a lot of money into the visual side. I became uh, part of a, a team of uh, designers who 
specialized in newspapers. Mm-hmm. So, and it was also a time of what they call the new journalism. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, Jimmy Breslin and Tom Wolfe yeah, and yeah. Stein, all those people. Yeah. It was a whole new and very personal approach to what had been traditional newspaper work. And I just, as a young beginning art director, I just fell right into that and got caught up in the what you might call the romance of journalism. So that's so I was doing. I was bouncing around among a bunch right. of different things, but keeping busy. And it was fine. I don't know if any of this is interesting. <laughs> Well, you know, I'll I'll tell you my background, and I did a little more research since we talked last time, because I was saying, oh, I saw your work in Electric Company magazine and things like that. But, you know, um, looking through the Internet and looking on your website and things like that, that book, that children's book you just mentioned, um, Potato Talk, that is the first book I saw. I said, I know there's a, a children's book by that Stan Mac drew or wrote or both or whatever. I didn't know if you wrote it, but, you know, I know, I remember it. And then you had a picture of the cover, because I don't have the book, unfortunately. <laughs> you have a picture of the cover on your website, and you go, that's the book! That's the book! Yeah. And I used to check it out of the library all the time, and I said, oh, I wow. really, you know, I was like four or five years old, and I was like, I really liked the you know, I didn't really memorize names back then. I really like this guy's quirky drawing style. And, I, you know, it's like it, it really appealed to me as a little kid. <laughs> and then... Super quirky, that's right. And then, you know, it's like I grew up with you. And so, you know, I'm going to be Mr. Fanboy right now. <laughs> it's like, so, you know, then oh, I, I started getting that. Sesame Street albums and books and things like that. And... Your artwork was there, and then they started Electric Company, and your artwork was there. And then yeah. later I graduated to National Lampoon and things like that, and your artwork was there. And I said, this guy's great. He's like in everything. <laughs> and then, there you know. There was a time when it seemed that way, yeah. Yeah. Now, you know, we did talk beforehand. You said, usually when I do these interviews, we're talking about the Village Voice. Well, you know, I grew up in California, so I'm on the West Coast. Uh, I didn't know what the Village Voice was. I kind of heard about it. Um, But, you know, I did mention that, you know, I got a book somewhere along the line when I was a kid or a teenager with Mark Allen Stamati's work, you know, because I thought, you know... It was called McDoodle Street, you know, and I thought, wow, that's really cool. And it said, from the pages is a village voice. So that's probably where the first time I ever heard of it. And then I go, oh, it's one of those uh, newspapers that's for New York, you know. But, you know, we had equivalents out here in California. There's a San Francisco Bay Guardian. uh, In San Jose had the Metro and things like that. That's where I grew up. And eventually I did see Village Voice because they did start uh, carrying it. Like if you went, I lived in San Francisco for a number of years, so I would see Village Voice at that point. And this was in the 80s and 90s. So I go, oh, there's Stan Max work there too, you know. And I didn't even think about that you'd probably been there for 20 years or whatever. Just, you know, just, 70s, yeah. it started. I yeah. was in it for 20 years though. Yeah. So yeah, you would have you would have come across it. It was it was also. I, I backed into everything I've ever done. It's not having a vision to begin with, I suppose. <laughs> but um, I was an illustrator, and uh, uh, that meant waiting for the phone to ring. Right. And while I was doing comic strips as well, they were not comic strips like anybody had ever really done before. I mean, it was the underground stuff, and I was a little bit older than that. But there was something in the water, in the air. It was <laughs> affecting all of us. And the Michael... Gross, the art director of the Lampoon, came up with this idea. I was doing illustrations for them because you could do the most 
off-the-wall kind of things for the lampoon you couldn't possibly do anywhere else as an illustrator. <laughs> yeah. I won't go into the details, but you know what I mean. Yeah. And then, so I knew that I knew them there, and um, Michael Gross said, you know, the editors gave me a section in the back of the magazine, all mine. I want to do a whole bunch of comic strips, but I want you guys to know it doesn't have to be a regular feature. It can be any time you want it. Just send it to me. I'll drop it in. It won't be like any other comic section, comic strip section. <laughs> so I, I came up with this idea. I, you know, in those days, you're crazy when you're young. I think, generally speaking, especially <laughs> yeah. at least in those days. I mean, the whole country was crazy in serious ways. It was a revolutionary period mm-hmm. of all kinds, and it was also just off the wall. And it was very druggy. In fact. I, so I did a comic strip for the Lampoon called Mule's Diner, which was a real diner I knew about in the Midwest. And I just, the conceit was, Mule was serving behind the counter, and anybody who came in and told him a good story that he thought was fun, he would give him a free cup of coffee. That was the gimmick. Right. So it, it allowed me to have people come in and tell him any off-the-wall story I felt like telling. <laughs> and it was usually contained in one page, so... That was easy. And people were truly convinced that I had to have been on drugs to have <laughs> done that strip. But it was such a relief from the, uh, even though it was a humorous illustrator, it was still certainly still a relief from uh, the more straightforward advertising illustration. Mm-hmm. So that so that Mule's Diner was my outlet uh, but the drawing was even goofier than usual usually often because i would be drawing it on either the subway or the train oh. i lived out of town for a while so it had this sort of bumpy weird line character but it was the lampoon that was fine the uh stories were crazy again not because i mean as i say the whole concept of cartooning was ingrained from when I was a kid, but I wasn't trying to be certainly a comic book guy. Mm-hmm. Those guys were really impressive. They could draw like, like anything, right? Yeah. I couldn't I couldn't do that. I could just do this funky stuff. <laughs> so, you know, Mule's Diner was kind of an, my answer to that stuff. I forget how I got in that. I'm sorry. Uh, well, well, this has got nothing to oh, do with I mean, any Well, I was just saying, yeah, I know I was talking about the Village Voice, but I was just saying, you know, how, what I grew up with. Now, uh, since we mentioned Lampoon, let's stick with it for a bit. Um, were you, you weren't there in the very beginning, were you? It seemed like you were there. Almost, like, yes. Going very close like 71, 72 or something like that? Does that sound um, right? You know, I don't remember. Certainly within the first year or so. Oh, okay. Because, yeah, they just started, I mean, they're not around now, but it, yeah, they started literally 50 years ago this month. So it's like, oh, uh, yeah, so the first issue came out in April 1970. So it's like. <laughs> well, I was working at the New York, New York Times. I went from the Herald Tribune as an art director to the New York Times. Trip folded. Mm-hmm. And I went to the Times as an art director. For a while, I was doing the, I was the art director of the uh, Sunday magazine. So it was a big deal at that time. And um, just drawing, you know, on the, on my way into work. <laughs> and that's where the lampoon uh, came into it. So, uh, yeah, it could have been. Early, certainly the yeah. early 70s. Now, did they, you said you always kind of backed into things. So they, did they seek you out and say, hey, we like your work, or how'd that... You mean I, the Lampoon? Yeah. 
Uh, I knew some people who were rich. Rick Meyerowitz, for example, oh, yeah. was a regular there. He did that Mona, famous Mona Gorilla cover for the Lampoon, right. you remember? Um, so we were buddies, and he said, I'm getting work uh, from the Lampoon. I said, well, I'll go up and say hello. And that's it was that easy. They were <laughs> looking for people, and my style fit. So oh, I was cool. in. It was not a big deal. Now, did you hang out there a lot, or were you mainly freelance, so you're working from home? <laughs> I, unlike Rick, who actually did a huge overview a few years ago on all of us, the contributors, the writers and cartoonists of the Lampoon, and who did hang out there a lot. Uh, well, I knew the guys. I didn't. I was, I was okay. busy. You know, I was uh, working full time yeah. at that time. Okay. So I would just uh, get an assignment, get a piece, get an article or something, and and that's that book he did called Drunk Stone Brilliant Dead or something like that. <laughs> yeah, if you yeah. get a chance, that is a history of a lot of the artists, cartoonists, illustrators active in yeah. those days because they used really good people. And it's a, yeah. he did a terrific job of putting it all together in a book form. Yeah, I have that book. Yeah, it's very good. Uh, yeah. And uh, there was a point, you know, I, I don't know, you know, all the books I've done, you know, probably not, but uh, I've written a book books about Cracked Magazine, uh, which I know you didn't contribute to, and uh, I'm working on one on Mad Magazine, and uh, there was a while there I was considering doing one on National Lampoon, and then I backed off of it because I talked to Rick about it, and he says, well, I'm working on a book, and it's a big art book and everything, and then, you know, uh, then a slew of Lampoon books came out in the last few years, you know, about... uh, And a film, too, I think. Yeah, about Sean Kenny and you know about just the lampoon itself and you know it's like and yeah there's a film that has the same title as Meyerowitz's book and it's like eh, too much too much lampoon yeah. and they're and they're they're insiders they they know what's going on i'd be like an outsider fan now i'd probably interview everyone like i'm doing with you now you know and have no problem doing it and you know it's a possibility i could do one you know uh at some point but you know i think that definitive books have been done about the lampoon and you know about the history and everything like that so yeah i think you're right about that you'll have to move on yes (laughs) but i I still enjoy it from afar um now how long did you work at the lampoon because i know you weren't there to the bitter end in 98 no no i got out it it changed a lot i I didn't uh by that time really the centerpiece two centerpieces of what I was doing because I walked away from whatever kids book I was doing and other things because this Village Voice comic strip uh, was a weekly Mm -hmm. and I did another one for Adweek magazine which was also a weekly so I did the voice for 20 years I did Adweek for 10 of the same so for half the time I was doing two every week and it just was too much to uh, fit anybody anything else in around they were two big gigs so that was what i did and that's kind of what why i said uh often when people want to talk to me it's about that and i had no idea i did something i stumbled on something that was very much of its time innovative for the time it doesn't mean the same thing today and to some extent others are doing it as well and that was a non-fiction journalistic comic strip covering real people, not the elite, not celebrities, none of that stuff, but just going out and wandering the streets of 
mostly Manhattan or New York City anyway, um, talking to people, overhearing them, going to hot spots, going to bars and Unitarian church, single centers and, and uh, movie lines and anywhere people were congregating in the city, homeless people. Um, and uh, did a, day, a weekly comic strip in which I took that those stories and built them into a 10 or 12 panel comic strip jam-packed with their words and and i would because i loved life drawing i would sketch them mm-hmm. so that even and so very often i'll still get uh, i still get uh comments from people who say hey you know that strip you did in 1982 on the corner of such and such and bleaker and so on so that was me do you have a copy of that so <laughs> the sketches were good enough so that um, you knew who the people, even if you didn't know that person, you knew the type. If they were down on uh, Avenue A and 8th Street, they looked a certain way. If they were on the Upper West Side at, uh, on Central Park West, they didn't look like that. They looked entirely different. Mm-hmm. They dressed different. Their body language was different. And that's what I kind of picked up on. So. Mm. Now, how did you get, uh, how did you, I guess, record everything? Did you just take notes and interview people? or? How- yeah, I had a little pad. I, the, the idea of a tape recorder uh, <laughs> was really bad, because then you'd have to sit and listen to endless reruns of the same thing, <laughs> and I was always on a tight deadline. So hmm. I did what I could. I had a good ear, I think, for um, quotes. Hmm. If, it, if it said, write me down, I wrote it down. If it said, ignore me, I ignored it. (laughs) And so a little pad, which was half filled with doodles of what people looked like, and the other part was comments that they um, actually said. And since I was really cautious about my own writing ability, Mm -hmm. I tried as hard as I could to never uh, change what they said. I would edit it, Mm -hmm. you know, for the sake of the size of the word balloon, but I never adjusted it, fine-tuned it, came up with a better version of it, right. that stuff. So I was, to a great extent, I was following the, without under, you know, not having ever been trained in it, following the outlines of what made it a pretty good reporter. Mm-hmm. You know, you, saw, you follow the news, follow your nose, <laughs> and try to be as accurate as possible. Now, did you hang out in any particular area, like Greenwich Village or Times Square, or just anywhere you felt like? Was there pretty much anywhere I felt? Like. It was mainly downtown. I lived downtown for the most part, mm-hmm. and I was comfortable there. The voice was there. I, it was more my world. East Village, the uh, West Village, the, um, and then on up towards um, Midtown. Mm-hmm. Uh, it evolved over time. At first, I was total um, outlaw. I mean, all I had was a little pad, no right to be anywhere. I pretended to be <laughs> whoever, you know, if I went into a singles bar, I pretended to be um, a guy in the make. Yeah. <laughs> but I also wanted to be the most boring version of that guy possible because I wanted the other people to do all the talking. Right, right. So, but, so... Not so much the um, Upper East Side, which was a kind of foreign land to me in those days. Uh, there were plenty of people who fit naturally into it, the people who came from um, private schools and whose world that was growing up. And so that they knew the language, they knew the, 
the, the names, they knew uh, places. I didn't. I, I was. I'm not even from New York, so right. um, I had. It was a lot easier to, or maybe it was my natural way to fit in with a kind of a vaguely hippie beatnik artist crowd uh, mm-hmm. from downtown. Well, it seems like you'd get more colorful, colorful stories that way than just somebody that's just like well-to-do or something and not right. kind of dull. <laughs> <laughs> well, there there are people uh, who go back, New Yorker people, for example, for whom that, or say Connecticut, another version of the Upper East Side, I think, who um, uh, who who know how to get something from them. I I didn't I didn't have the uh, the key mm-hmm. to that crowd. Uh, <laughs> so you're right. And, and besides, artists uh, suited me better. In fact, the I started to do a second comic strip for Adweek magazine, mm-hmm. basically the same thing, but a smaller format in which, because I had been in the business for a while, I knew lots of art directors and advertising and copywriters and production people uh, at a time when uh, the creatives were pretty much running advertising, not like today. Mm-hmm. Business runs advertising, you know, right. it's very different. But in those days, uh, George Wallace, if you know that name, and. Uh, uh, other people like that were, were kind of ruling the roost as creatives in advertising, and I knew them, so I could call up Joe and say, uh, "What are you doing today?" And such and such, and uh, young group camp say, "What are you doing?" He said, "Oh well, I'm meeting with my copywriter. We have a new uh, pitch that we're working on." I said, "Do you mind if I come in and sit uh, in there and listen to you a little bit?" Hmm. He said, no, no, fine, come on, what do I care? <laughs> so I would go in, that was not possible, you know, 20 years later, mm-hmm. you have to go through three or four layers of bureaucracy before, and they wouldn't let me in anyway. So it, <laughs> it, it lets an outsider in to listen in on an advertising pitch. Right. What are you, insane? <laughs> but, so it really was a, a comic strip that could only have been done in that era. Did the, the reason that one stopped was because things were changing, or you were just tired of doing it? I walked away. Actually, I walked away from it. It was 10 years, and um, it was getting a little tougher, and I wanted to do books. Actually, mm-hmm. I got a book assignment. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can still get the book. It was, uh, I, well, it's complicated. I don't know how <laughs> interesting any of this stuff is. But again, began, over in the, I don't know how much you know of this stuff, but in the late 80s, early 90s, in the East Village of New York, there was a huge protest movement grew up, partly serious over the gentrification, the, the lurking, coming gentrification yeah. of what had been mainly uh, a world of druggies and, um, uh, and Hispanic culture and mm-hmm. uh, in, in beat up old immigrant housing still. And at the center of it was Tompkins Square Park, which had been over the decades a center of uh, political and social protest had been all the way back probably to the 20s. Mm-hmm. So it was a crazy world. And what caught my attention was that uh, as the neighborhood went downhill and the realtors worked but had not yet pounced, um, a lot of the landlords were walking away from these old buildings, abandoning them to the city, mm-hmm. which had no, didn't know what to do with them either. Mm-hmm. And some young people of all kinds of backgrounds, some European, some young, some homeless, um, uh, came came together around 
what they're calling the squatter movement. <laughs> These were buildings that were vacant, mm-hmm. left to deteriorate, and people began to move in there because they were either homeless or they had political motivation, and take them over secretly, live in them secretly, uh, illegally connect with some, a water line or a, or a electrical line from the street and <laughs> try to live there. <laughs> and this this brought a lot of uh, attention from the police, from these realtors, uh, from the city in general, and so there, suddenly there were riots all over hmm. um, the lower uh, the East Village and even the Lower East Side. Um, and I got drawn to it. So a <laughs> lot of my strips of the last few years that I was doing uh, the really funnies and the voice I pretty much focused on that world because I was just fascinated mm. by it mm. and an editor came to me and said uh, have you ever considered a book on it and I know there have been books I, I, I a number of people were I wasn't the only one over there uh, although I did get close to a lot of uh, like closer than a lot of the media to um, uh, some of the homeless and um, some of the squatters. Um, but anyway, he said, could you do a book? I said, I tell you what really interests me is uh, the roots of protest. I'd like to go back to the American Revolution and see how it all started. Mm. What's, where is legitimate protest? Where is illegal protest? Where's, where are the rights of individuals? Where are the rights of a government? And he said, great, do it. And so when I got that assignment, I began to think it was time to give up something, and I pretty much walked away from um, the uh, the Adweek mm. comments. I kept doing the voice a little bit longer, but not a lot longer. The voice itself was in trouble. Yeah. So at one point, they let go a lot of the features they had, the sports guy, the Mark... Uh, Stamati had already gone to the Washington Post, so he was gone. Mm-hmm. Eventually, they let Pfeiffer go. It was just a, a bloodletting, uh, foolishly, I think. Yeah. But uh, the, the result was that uh, I left there as well in the early 90s and uh, around 94 and um, began to focus more on books. Mm-hmm. Now, the book, was that the one, what was it called that you ultimately did? Well, originally it was called Real Life American Revolution because they were trying to uh, uh, pick up on my Real Life Funnies. They wanted some words that people could recognize. But um, eventually that publisher went out of business. (laughs) And uh, then I resold it. And now it's available. It's called Taxes, the Tea Party, and Those Revolting Rebels. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) And... Do you think you achieved your goal on that particular book? As far as I had a good time doing it, it was it was pretty raucous. Uh, I have a kind of a you know screw you style anyway, <laughs> uh, and ironic, and and so I made fun of everybody, whether mm-hmm. it was uh, George Washington or uh, King George or anybody in between. But basically, I tried to hold on to what I felt were the real issues of it. If you get a chance to look at it, you'll see that yeah. uh, it got some good, very good reviews, actually. Mm-hmm. And um, I think uh, I think it was uh, really uh, something I should use as a as a 
a guy in doing any uh, future books. Mm-hmm. And um, it seems like you've done quite a few books since. I mean, I mean, we could talk about you know the various ones. Uh, uh, one is the story of the Jews, a four thousand year. What did I write? Adventure. Adventure. Yeah, <laughs> I can't even read my own writing. <laughs> Again, that's another. I don't know whether this is a good. These stories I'm telling about stumbling or walking backwards into assignments could ever apply today. I think it's much tougher today, but that uh, Jewish history book came about mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> in the same way. I was pitching, I had an agent, mm-hmm. and uh, he was very good at selling. He wasn't good at um, coming across with royalties, but he was very good at selling ideas. <laughs> um, and he um, had a friend at uh, Random House, and, the, uh, and I said, Great. you know, I'd like to pitch some book, books to him, I'd do some uh, uh, pitches, put it together. One of them, I remember, was the history of the West. Mm-hmm. And he went in with some of my pitches to his friend and editor there, and the other said, invited me to come in and sit and talk to him. So we sat and talked for a while. He says, you know, and I, this is out of the blue, he said to me. <laughs> yeah, I'm not that interested in these ideas of yours, but did you ever consider a Jewish history? And I thought, where did that come from? Wow. <laughs> now, it happens that I do have a Jewish background, but I'm not at all religious. And I didn't know very much at all about my own mm-hmm. history, Jewish history. Mm-hmm. But, you know, by this time I'm very practiced as a researcher and a cartoonist. And I thought, this, maybe this could be a way to educate myself on my own roots mm-hmm. and, and and make it, you know, make it work. So I set to work on that. Uh, so there you go. I didn't have any notion of doing that kind of a book. <laughs> but uh, it was his idea, probably because he thought it would sell. <laughs> because uh, Jewish books are various kind of books with uh, Jewish topics of all sorts, um, I think, do sell, or at least he thought they did. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, I started to do some rough sketches and took them into him, and he said, "These are terrible. I, this is not the book I imagined at all. I, 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 I don't know what we're going to do about this." Anyway, uh, a few days later, he was actually fired, <laughs> and the, the job was—you can't make this stuff up. The job was taken over, or my book assignment was taken over by a young woman who um, was new to uh, uh, publishing in general and as an editor. Mm. And she loved what I was doing. (laughs) So (laughs) I was able to um, go ahead and do my usual approach. Mm -hmm. I don't know if he ever saw it or what he thought about it, but he was (laughs) gone by then. (laughs) Now, for for books like this, and we'll talk about a couple other, did you use your same style where you interviewed people or were you just doing complete research just looking in catalogs and books and things like that yeah i said you're very i'm very experienced at um interviewing people at that point yeah i know how to but why can't i and and make them come alive on the page why can't i do the same thing with uh, history history is filled with life of course if you can find it or if you can tell it or if you know how to deal with it um, do the same thing. Use the exact same methods, except find, of course, you had to find great 
books on these various topics. If the book was boring, then it wasn't helping me at all. But right. if I could find writers with a lively style, and for me that often meant reporters who had turned to writing because they knew how to reach people. Anyway, I found that I could do the same thing with um, history mm-hmm. that, I, that I could with my uh, really funny comic strips. Mm-hmm. Now, when you did these history books, did you also do research uh, as far as getting, you know, like dress and, you know, yeah, it was the same thing? Right? Yeah, yeah. Visual research yeah. was the same as. Uh, so to, to make it look authentic and everything, you're not just making it up, you know. <laughs> no. Yeah. So you, you do very thorough research. So how long does it take you to do one of these type of books? Well, the, those two books you mentioned took about three years each. Wow. A year to do research, a year to pull it together into a format, and a year to do the final version. I, I don't know how far you want to go with these. Let me separate. The kids' books came earlier, and I, to tell you the truth, while I done a bunch of them, I never was comfortable doing kids' books, and it, it may have <laughs> oh, been the reason. That I just I didn't feel I had a message for yeah. kids. Yeah. Uh, there's only one of my kids' books, which actually has made some money. It was done so simply. It didn't take any of the kind of drawing uh, style that um, I use in my illustrations. It's called Ten Bears in My Bed. Mm. It's still around, still in print, mm. and it just works. You mm. know, if you have a touch that works for kids, you, you'll you know it, and it'll work. But uh, mine, for the most part, were just fun drawings that they didn't right. make any great dent. I will say, as a kid, when I was reading a lot of these books, it didn't matter to me. I don't need to have a message <laughs> necessarily oh, when I'm did. reading a kid's book. Thank I, you. <laughs> so I enjoyed I them. You know, the other one is you know, one dancing drum. I said, oh, I saw that book. You know, see, I, I didn't know your books off the top of my head. You know, but when I saw them on your website, I yeah. said, oh, I remember that book. You know. Well, that's interesting. You mentioned that because that was. That actually won one of the best illustrated books of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, uh, the New York Times has a annual feature called Best Illustrated Books, and it's the 10 best, I think. And that was one of them. And the reason, I think, that I got that award was because Maurice Sendak was on the jury. <laughs> and and he, he said something about it. Was a, it's very slapstick, but with a sophisticated feel to it. And I thought, geez, thanks, that's yeah. that's just the way I would like to think that <laughs> book were. So yeah, I'm glad you said that. It was it's very simple, very yeah. bold, and um, uh, not really have a. Well, the plot line is visual. Yeah, it just builds. Yeah. And as a kid, well, you know, I wanted to be a cartoonist. I ended up being more of a writer. I still can draw, but uh, um, you know, I would absorb kids books you know like my favorites was maurice sendek i i'd pour over the illustrations and where the wild things are and in the night kitchen and basically anything he wrote and then somewhere along the line in college i actually met him he did a talk at university and stuff like that and so oh, uh, good. and uh you know i was really thrilled i didn't get actually meet him face to face but you know because it was a huge crowd but still you know, hearing, you know, him, you know, and then Dr. Seuss, of course, Ted Geisel, sure. and, uh, you know, lots of different illustrators that I just grew up with. And then, of course, comic strips with, like, Schultz and, you know, 
Mort Walker That's and everybody world. else. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so, you know, I was always appeal. It, it was always appealing if that somebody had a visual style that intrigued me, you know, and so, <laughs> and somehow in the recesses of my memory, I just said, oh, Stan Mack, he's a name to remember somehow, and well, so. I appreciate that. I bounced around more than, <laughs> I felt, I always envied people like Marie Sendak, because not only did they draw well, yeah, they had their own personal vision, yeah, and I, I felt, I, yeah, I never quite got that, <laughs> that clear of picture of, of who I was. Edward Gorey, of course, another one. But yeah, there were plenty. Yeah. Tommy Ungera, who did a million different things, yeah. too, had a... You always knew a Ungera drawing when you saw it. Yeah. Some people just had it. Yeah. But I just like the distinct styles like that, you know, and it's like Crockett Johnson was one. I liked Arnold Lobel yeah, was sure. one. I, you know, I can, uh, Richard Scarry, I can rattle them all off, you know. It's like I paid Scary attention to huge, these guys, right. you know. Uh, Norman Bridwell, you know, I'm trying to think of different ones, you know. And, <laughs> and um, you know, I, I, I know we're jumping around a bit, and I will ask about some of your other books, but, you know, you were involved, like I said, with Sesame Street and Electric Company. Were you ever involved in the TV show itself? Like, did no. they ever do any animations of your work or anything like that? Uh, yes. I oh, did, they did two okay. animated shorts, one of which won an award in someplace in Europe. Um, uh, I forget how they came about. I was connected to a, uh, I had some friends at a little animation production house. I think it was, God, you know, I think the name just popped in my head. I think it was called Ovation. Mm-hmm. Okay. They're long gone. Uh, <laughs> and and um, uh, with them, I did two short animated pieces having to do with English. Okay. The, uh, I forget, an IR, an EAR, the sound, the AR, I think it was called, I think it was called a bird in a car. It was a giant bird sitting on top of a car, which is speeding down the road. And I don't think the people in the car knew the bird was up there. Mm-hmm. And and somehow it was about E R A R I R sounds and and uh, you know teaching the kids about that. And the other one was something similar. It was about a parrot in a cage in a house in a room. And somebody knocking on the door and parrot answering it. <laughs> I can't tell you okay. now the punchline. But anyway, I did those two and and would have liked to have done more. But um, somehow, you know, I, I got if I go through boxes of my old sketches and there are a lot of them, I'll, I find that um, there are pitches for animated shorts that I never followed through with. Hmm. I think any like any writer, maybe you have this both ways um, over the years you come up with ideas that get halfway through yeah. you don't know what to do with them how to end them who to pitch them to yeah and you get side are any good and, yeah. and they end up in a, in a big box now you, <laughs> you mentioned that one with the parrot it's not the one where it's the plumber that he's knocking on the yes, door the it is that one okay parrot. I love that one you know, <laughs> <laughs> Where did you? So you must have seen that. Oh, I know the, uh, that one by heart. You know, it's like in the parrot wow. says, "It's the plumber. He's come to fix the sink." Exactly. <laughs> and the guy has like a heart attack and dies. And it's like, wow, this is pretty cool for a kids show. The guy dies. <laughs> 
See, I should have kept going. I probably had a career, but no, you guys. No, that's a, that's a very memorable one. In fact, they, a few years ago, I think it's Shout Factory is the label. They put out the best of Electric Company and put out complete episodes and i believe that segment's on one of them somewhere but you know it's like but it, it was a very memorable one and people would say that at school that go it's the plumber <laughs> i've come to fix the sink you know just because it was so ludicrous you know wow this is a revelation well, i hope that um <laughs> maybe you can send me if there's any way i could get to see that it might be on youtube but yeah i could find it and see if i can send you a link see if you see if you can find it send yeah. me a yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I I, sh I should. Um, well, that's good to know because again, I, maybe I was jumping too fast um, <laughs> to settle down in any one mm -hmm. area. That could be it. But if if there's a little time, I want to mention uh, one book of mine that um, is entirely different, mm -hmm. um, and the, probably the most important thing I've ever done. Though it's only funny in portions. Mm. And then what happened was my career uh, took a sharp, well, came to a dead end mm. in the uh, the end of the 99 and then for a few years after that, or even before 99, from like 95 through to about 2005. Mm. <clears throat> what happened was um, uh, I was living with a woman, we were long-time partners, many years, um, and she got breast cancer. Mm. Uh, and um, uh, so we treated it so for five years. She battled it, and then it seemed to be under control. She went through the usual stages that you go through, um, and then it went away. I had done a, we had done a lot of traveling together. We actually went around the world to celebrate um, her beating it, what we thought. Mm -hmm. But uh, but uh, a few years later, it came back in force, and then from mm -hmm. then on, I did nothing almost nothing but be a caregiver for her. Right. Uh, we were very close, and uh, it was it was just the most important thing I could think to do. Uh, she died at the very end of 99, mm. practically the last day, like New Year's wow. or a day before it. Um, and I did, I was doing an occasional comic strip for the New York Times regional sections on and basically, I was trying to do a real life funnies in the suburbs, which is a, which is a joke in itself. <laughs> Sorry, <Yeah. laughs> it's hardly the East Village. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, I was doing what I could, but uh, sort of half-heartedly. And uh, then on the last, though I didn't know it at the time, last what turned out to be the last two or three days of her life, I did a comic strip on our life there. Mm -hmm. Because people were beginning, you know, it was Christmas to New Year's. It was celebratory time, and especially with New Year's coming up, there was a lot of festive feeling every place right. in the city. And we were, and she was dying. Hmm. We were in this uh, apartment. And I did a comic strip that, um, in retrospect, I don't know how I did it. It was rough. And they ran it. Equally amazing. They took it and ran it in the... Um, uh, suburban section to the Sunday Times. Wow. Well, the uh, the outcry from the suburbs was enormous, mostly hate-filled letters, some very complimentary, but a lot of them outraged that the Times would dare run such a topic as breast cancer in a comic strip format 
in their section. They're sitting there with their coffee and bagels, and they're they're just horrified by, by what they're reading. Mm. Uh, <laughs> the irony is that the uh, suburban editor never got letters. I don't know if anybody ever read the suburban section, particularly. <laughs> they got a ton of mail. They thought it was so wonderful that for the next two week's issues, they ran the letters with an explanation of what my intent was. They were very good about it. Hmm. One of the people who, um, is this all right? Can I tell this story? Of course, yeah, go. (laughs) One of the people who uh, read the strip and saw the letters was uh, that same editor who had been my editor on the uh, story to choose. Oh, wow. And, And she said, you know, I think there's a book here. Cool. And I thought, well, fine, because um, I would like to do that book. She said, okay, let's do it. So let's start. Uh, and so um, I got a contract to do that book. And for the next three years, I worked on the book uh, using my writing skills, my uh, drawing skills. I, it's not a graphic book at all. It's heavily illustrated, but it's running text with mm-hmm. drawings dropped in mm. where they work with the text. So it looks almost like a traditional book that's heavily illustrated with mm. spot drawings. Mm. And I did it. And it um, and I got some terrific quotes from Gloria Steinem, mm. Barbara Ehrenreich, important women writers who, who were very moved by it some of whom knew Janet because she was a writer herself. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that stopped my, my career, commercial or artistic career. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that's all I did for quite a long time. And kind of, But the world had changed by then. So right. It, uh, now, anyway. now, is that book uh, like uh, serious or has some humor in it? or yes, how, how... Well, she, Janet was a very lively, upbeat, kind of a wild character. <laughs> and I tried to capture her spirit, even as uh, we were both struggling with the um, with the cancer. And so the book is a combination of uh, a memoir of us together and all of the problems that anybody facing a serious cancer has to deal with. Right. One that it's everything's always unexpected. You never know what's going to come around the corner uh, next. Right. So it's a combination of um, some lighthearted moments because we try to be funny with each other. Right. Some advice for anybody going through it. Some information about where the um, medical profession often does and did, in my case, screw up. Mm. That's it. And then um, the last. I don't say quarter of the book is uh, how one grieves mm-hmm. afterwards. When you so, say screwed up, do you mind saying what what went wrong? Wrong. Well, I'll give you one prime example. There were a bunch, but yeah. one was that she became very close to her oncologist, a woman she liked a lot, and who was very friendly with her and very helpful, and was stuck with her practically the whole way. And then, as her situation got really bad. Mm-hmm. the woman disappeared Wow! out of our life. Huh. It could not have been worse because we didn't, she was our go-to person for information about what to expect, what to do, right. uh, like that. And 
she was gone. Now, she had her reasons for disappearing, but none of them was important enough for what she did. So wow. uh, you learn to trust your doctors, and then you, but you have to be a little bit careful about that. And then there was the yeah. whole insurance thing. Yeah, and I've heard similar good. stories on both insurance and, you know, doctors abandoning their post, as it were, from other people who've had not uh, necessarily cancer, but similar experiences with the medical profession you know so i go hmm. that's why i was kind of curious what your yeah. situation was yeah, that, well oncologists and surgeons in general do deal with life and death situations all the time yeah. and how they deal with it what's the human <clears throat> and humane side of their profession yeah, there are courses on that now yeah there weren't so much in those days hmm. but um uh a big issue yes you're right yeah Interesting. So the book is called Janet and Me, mm-hmm. and if you're tempted <laughs> to, to look at it, yeah. it's on. You can find it on Amazon. It's a Simon Schuster book. Okay. And uh, the full title, I think, Janet and Me: An Illustrated Story of Love and Loss. <laughs> uh, yeah, probably not the best title. <laughs> I, although I don't know what it should have been. But. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's not Janet Jackson. It's somebody. Might have believed. Um, now, uh, I think, uh, currently you're working on a book, unless I have misinformation here, called Road to Revolution? Is that correct? Uh, my wife and uh, my current wife, I got married again, uh, ten years ago, mm-hmm. um, and, um, who is also a writer and editor, and I did two graphic novels together. No, they're published. One is called Road to Revolution. Okay. It is about two young kids from very different backgrounds from each other who get caught up in a couple of years of the early days of the American Revolution. Mm. And the second book, uh, it was published by Bloomsbury. The second book is called um, Fight for Freedom, and it's the same idea but takes place during the Civil War of two kids, one a, a, a a black enslaved boy on a, on a uh, Virginia plantation, the son of uh, uh, parents who were also enslaved, and the daughter of the um, plantation owner. And what happens again in the early days of the uh, of the Civil War and how they are thrown together by chance, have to cope with a lot of things. They're both graphic novels, mm-hmm. and. Um, are available, although uh, now, again, uh, Bloomsbury, they came out probably too early for uh, perhaps to catch this surge movement of um, uh, teachers turning to uh, nonfiction novels and other sorts of lively non-textbook-like books to use in schools, Mm -hmm. which is what this was made to do. But... um, uh, it, it, uh, they may be, we're getting the rights back. I'm going to resell it as a series, oh, cool. uh, but, um, uh, I'm not sure it, it would only be, I'm sure it's on Amazon, but it would, but I don't think, uh, Bloomsbury has any left. Um, Scholastic might, I understand they sold some mm-hmm. as well. So those are the two books. The, um, I don't know how far they go into this thing. I mean, what happens after a lot of years of drawing is uh, you can begin to lose <laughs> your, your uh, strength. Uh, I began to have some nerve damage in my drawing arm, my left arm. 
So the drawing of um, the books, especially the first one, leaves much to be desired. And I'd never done a graphic novel before. It takes a lot of work to do those things. <laughs> Not bad. <Yeah>. So, um, <laughs> uh, how many yeah, pa- how uh, many pages were they? God, I don't remember. They're fairly thick. It's a very well produced book. Okay. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's a very uh, uh, complete story. It put a lot of um, uh, thinking into the uh, plot line to mm. try to cover the important issues of the of the time that the two kids were living through. Mm-hmm. So it's fairly thick book. Mm-hmm. And you just drew these, or did you write it as well? We wrote. We 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 wrote. Uh, we wrote them together. You know, I, I I'm the research, the historian okay. <laughs> of, of us, and so um, and and uh, did a good part of the plotting of it. Uh, it isn't doesn't have any of the irony of the two cartoon histories. This is meant to be read straight. You might say it's, mm-hmm. it's serious that way, but it's lively and um, lighthearted in many parts. Mm-hmm. You'd have to take a look at it, but. Uh, mm-hmm. Proud of it. It's just that um, you have to give me a little uh, <laughs> uh, understanding about the drawing style, especially in the first one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, in recent times, you've done some work for uh, the American Bystander, and I recently interviewed on this podcast Michael Gerber, which is how we got introduced. Oh, yeah. And uh-huh. uh, tell us a little bit about working with Michael on that publication. Michael is, is an adventurer, clearly, yeah. I don't know what he said to you, but he started up a humor magazine. A, a number of the people he drew in to work with were old Lampoon people, but it's not the Lampoon. Right. It's much more, I don't know, we call it mainstream in a way, or at least it's not as uh, edgy or ironic. Right. It's intended to be more straightforward humorous but sophisticated too not corny in any way anyway he decided to do this magazine as a print project at a time when print is really suffering as you know (laughs) so amazing that he's doing this and 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 what he's done is pull together a lot of artists cartoonists of different eras different generations uh, but all good in their own way, even though they're coming from different backgrounds. And, and he's formed a kind of community of these people mm-hmm. who don't have a lot of options today. There are yeah. graphic books, nonfiction and, and fiction. There is the New Yorker and one or two places where you can sell cartoons. But um, the art schools are turning out some very talented people, and there are certainly a lot of talented people that go back to the Lampoon days without a lot of um, opportunity. Mm-hmm. And he, he's pulled them together. He's got a terrific uh, sense of spirit and camaraderie with them. So <clears throat> is it going to fly and for how long? I don't know, but <laughs> it's a great idea. And I've contributed as, as have so many others. Mm-hmm. And so that was like a no-brainer, even though, I mean, he, by his own admission, it was like, it's like a combination of Lampoon and New Yorker. So that's where he's kind of driving that's it at. Yeah. yeah, that's certainly he's a, he has uh, big ambitions, yeah. and he's trying to do that. And I think he's a terrific uh, editor in the sense that he's a motivator. Mm-hmm. He gets people excited. He gets people to want to contribute. 
Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it, it seems to be working, but I don't know anything about the business end of publishing and, uh, <laughs> that's his area. He seems to have an instinct for that as well. We just have yeah. to see if it's going to go. But anyway, that's, that's the Michael. Yeah. Gerber, and he talks uh, about story. it. I mean, I haven't posted that episode yet, but I can let you know when it's up so you can listen to oh, what good. he says because he does talk about the publishing industry and how, what he does through Kickstarter is differing than putting it out in regular newsstand distribution. And considering where we are now with the pandemic and everything, it's probably actually the preferable way to do distribution. You know? Which yeah. is kind of ironic, you know, because I don't, you know, neither of us, you know, and your pre- yourself included, you know, ever predicted that this would come about, you know, for this, no, you for know, sure. and, uh, you know, and that'll lead me into my ne- next question, you know, and probably the last subject we're going to talk about today is just, you know, he it said that uh, you were looking for people to talk about their experiences so far with this pandemic. Now, you know, you interviewed me a couple weeks ago, and I tried to give you information about my situation, which my situation is generally upbeat probably more than other people. Um, But it might be because I'm more of an introvert, and I'm fine working at home, working on projects. Uh, We do have to get out, my girlfriend and I, you know, fiancé and I, um, and we do, you know, road trips now, which I don't know if I said that the other day. Day, but you know it's like that, yeah. yeah and it, you know i realized you know that helps me from like going mad during the week you know because we'll go on a road trip and we won't talk with anybody you know we'll just go out and sightsee and stuff like that and then come back you know just to do something different than staring at the same four walls well i think yeah. i'd like to talk to you about that not yeah. now but, yeah uh, yeah perhaps can talk again. Yeah. Too, because yeah. what's happened is that um i've started i what so uh, i'm I'm home like everybody else, and um, uh, I got hold of a iPad because I was having some arm problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, I shifted over to the iPad from paper, mm-hmm. and and so I've been practicing, looking for projects to get up to speed with the iPad, which I'm finding works well with my arm. And so one of the ideas I came up with was just to do something, make a comment about this thing we're, we're living through here. I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not doing really serious things when I'm not in the hospital. I don't have access to uh, talking to people um, who are on the front lines, but I could do something. And it was through Michael uh, that uh, I came up with the idea of uh, talking to people who were at home, mm-hmm. working at home instead of in the office. And so he, put it out on, um, he posted that question. Anybody's interested, I'd like to talk to him. And as a result, I started to do um, a drawing in which, I did, a drawing in which the character who is me is sitting at a uh, chair at a table mm-hmm. with a cup of coffee. And across from him, instead of sitting talking to you across from the table and interviewing you, we're talking through my uh, laptop. Right. <laughs> and, the, and the drawing stays almost exactly the same. Right. I've seen a, uh, some of them. <laughs> so I've done, I don't know, six or eight of them in which the person on the screen is quoted, is saying something. Mm-hmm. And hopefully it has a little bit of a meat to it, humor, importance, that uh, it's worth reading. Mm-hmm. And so I, 
and Michael's run a couple of them, and I, I put them up on Instagram and Facebook just as a way to keep going and get involved, be able to do something about this mm-hmm. uh, in whatever small way I could. So that's where we came in and um, where, where that'll go from here. So I just actually put it aside for uh, a couple of weeks because I got a little project to do that uh, uh, I want to... Um, work on this assignment yeah. and uh, so uh, again it's expanding my experience on the AI bed so I'm hanging with it it'll be done in about a week mm-hmm. and then I'll probably pick up this uh, thing again although a lot of people I'm talking to like you say it's well I take that back I was going to say it's, it's fairly mild but um, the one I did not long ago uh, was about a guy who's wife was sick probably with covid mm-hmm. whose son then became ill they feared covid so she's they have a small two-bedroom apartment in manhattan he's she's in one bedroom he's in the other the teenage son the daughter and the father are sleeping on the couch in the living room and he's walking the dog <laughs> <laughs> every day and doing the cooking with his daughter and it's just a mess yeah. But he he found a um, you know a, a possible light in the future, and that is, and that's what the quote that I use. He said, "You know, we're waiting for her to have a normal temperature for three days, mm-hmm. and then she can come out, and then she may, depending, because they're saying that um, people who've had it could be immune. Right. If that's true, she's going to come out of that bedroom a superwoman. She's yeah. going to be able to walk." the aisles of Trader Joe's fearlessly. Yep. <laughs> right. And I thought, well, that's perfect. I'll just put that in. So that's, that touches on some of the more serious stuff because you've got two sick people in the little apartment. Right. Well, I, I think I smell another book coming from you <laughs> at some point <laughs> when this is all over. <laughs> maybe not right yeah. now, but maybe in a couple no, of years or something, you know. Well, <laughs> right, actually, I'm not home. Uh, yeah. I'm uh, living, um, in the, uh, I live in Manhattan, yeah. but uh, I'm not able to get back there, so we're living in an apartment in uh, in Los Angeles until this is over. I don't know when I'll get back to my drawing board and my books yeah. and, wow. and our real place, but you're right. Uh, hopefully we'll all get there. Yeah. And um, what the world's going to be like what the subject matter of that book might be we don't know yet i mean you're looking for a book too yeah maybe about cartoonists about cartooning something that's of interest in that area of pop culture but it it's it's going to be there down the road for both of us i think well we just don't know what it is yeah i don't know either and it's like I continue doing these podcasts for the summer here. You know, I don't know how long I'll go, but, uh, you know, as far as, you know, I was originally going to take a break, and then I realized everybody's at home, and they want something to listen to, and it's like, I thought, should I talk about it, like the elephant in the room, or should I ignore it? And then I realized it's actually interesting, so I'm kind of doing what you're doing a little bit. I haven't posted all those yet, uh, because I'm I'm always a little bit ahead, so um, I'm just at the tail end of the ones that I was posting that that are right before 
you know, the 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 thing hit. So they're like, oh, I'm going to do a yeah. show in June. I'm doing a show in July. So I had to put like a disclaimer. This was recorded before this, you know. But then next week, I think, is the first one after. And it's like people are saying, oh, wow, things are different for me and blah. I, you know, yeah. I, you know, and I'm interviewing people that run comic book stores and interviewing people that... That's you know, a good idea. You know. That's really a good idea. And, yeah. and uh, there was a book that came out not long ago. What's his name? Um, the book about bookstores around the country, independent yeah. bookstores. Yeah. Um, I don't know the name. He's of a cartoonist. Book. He's a cartoonist. I, I know you'd know who he was, or I can think of his name. I'll think of it as soon as we hang up. Right. Anyway, the idea of, yeah. of uh, talking uh, to people in the business all over the place is probably. Somewhere in there is a good idea yeah. that uh, you could follow up on. Right. Sure. So, you know, we'll see where it all leads. Um, uh, I guess uh, we'll leave it at this point, and I'll talk to you soon. But uh, is there anything you'd like to plug, how people can get in contact with you, or website or anything? Well, uh, well my, they certainly go to stanmac.com, which is uh, an overview of a lot of the different stuff. I've done um, uh, my email is realstanmac at gmail dot com, <laughs> and uh, if anybody wants to be interviewed, uh, if they got a a story that links up with um, what we're all living through in some way or thinks they do, uh, I'm I'm happy to uh, field some calls and see what we can make of it. I'd like to I'll get, probably get back to this um, when um, I finish this little project. Right. So yeah, and please uh, take a look at Janet and me. Of all the books I've done, it's the it's the one that might interest people who are mainly interested in cartoonists and cartooning and graphic works the least because it's more serious. But um, it's it's an important. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Stan Mac, for being my special guest. Episode number eighty will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner Goldfarb and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2020, Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night. Headed home to a cardboard hut with duct tape doors. I'm paying Be glad it isn't yours Now get up Don't fall back Don't fall back Don't fall back